Welcome to another episode with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and the entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore in the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. Market Dominance Guy Chris Beal is flying solo again this week as he meets with data guru Tom Zhang. Tom is a business intelligence engineer and works as an independent contractor in the field of data analysis. In other words, he spends his days making sense out of those large quantities of data that tend to pile up in businesses. As CEO of Connect and Sell, Chris uses Tom's data analysis services to guide him through the often confusing pathways that data can create. As Chris says, because data is kept in ways that are not always optimal for analysis, business leaders need people like Tom to help make sense of it, so they'll know if they're dominating their market or not, or if they're making or losing money on different parts of their business. With education credentials in economics and finance, Tom employs his talents in data engineering, data architecture, and data analysis. Along with these skills, he brings a great bedside manner, coupled with brutal honesty, to his data-sharing sessions with CEOs. To get an actionable truth about the numbers he's analyzing for companies, Tom uses a series of questions that he asks himself and his clients. Is this data meaningful? Is it true? And does it lead us somewhere or not? Take a listen to how expert data analysis can help you dominate your market on today's Market Dominance Guys episode, Giving your data the sniff test. Hey, everybody, Chris Beal here without Corey Frank. I don't know how I can get by and market dominance guys episode or two without him, but I don't know. I'm going to be brave and I'm just going to, I'm going to plunge right in. I'm here with Tom Jung. Tom is a data guru. He's a guy who makes sense out of data. He's a master of the tools and the techniques and the mindset that it takes to take those big piles of data that tend to pile up in our businesses and and help you make sense out of them. And he's working with me at Connect and Sell to make sense out of our, oh, let's say 50 million rows a year of data. We call them rows in the data business. So think of it as you know, we do 50 million dials a year, each one generates some data. And if we wanted to figure out anything about that data, it's a couple of different ways we could go. I could have somebody do a project and go try to figure some stuff out. But what I've been doing with Tom, and this is uh, this is very market dominance guys relevant, is we spend some time every day exploring the data together. I've come up with a name for it. I call it a data concierge. So the CEO or CRO or whoever really cares about trying to understand the business and figure out what to do about the business can actually exercise their curiosity directly on the data, but without becoming an expert on the tools and have somebody to help them think through what makes sense, what's a good hypothesis, how might we go about addressing that hypothesis and and get some facts. So welcome, Tom. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. It's awesome to have you here. And this is one of these things that, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff on market dominance, guys, but it tends to be about sales. And it tends to be about sales as though my thesis, which is you can pave a market with trust and uh, with trust-based conversations or trust-yielding conversations and then harvest that market 
over three or four years as folks come into the decision process. It's as though that thesis just operates by itself, right? And I think that's BS, actually. When you really look at a real business, you know, and then you think, well, how does it work? I've got to be getting feedback from the outside world somehow that says, hey, what you're trying is either working or not, or accomplishing X or Y, or maybe doing something surprisingly wonderful that you didn't even imagine. And that tends to be, uh, I'll say, hidden in the data in two ways. One is data is fundamentally complex, maybe three ways. Tom might give us some more, but one is it's fundamentally complex. It represents lots of different things that happen, and you're trying to figure out what does it all really, really mean, and how does it go together? And the other is data is kept in ways that are not optimal for analysis. So we tend to build systems that are good for operating, getting something done, but we tend not to build them so that they're great for figuring out what was going on. So I'm just gonna have a chat here with Tom and he's gonna enlighten us about something that I think every person who cares about market dominance should be thinking about, which is who is helping you make sense of the data in your business such that you can tell if you're dominating or not. You can tell if you're making or losing money on different parts of the business. And you can even uncover opportunities to go and build the business where you might not have seen those opportunities before. So I'm going to ask Tom just a little bit about his background first, and then we'll go from there. So Tom, how did you fall into this? I know you used to teach little kids how to play the piano. Uh, is that the background uh, that that led you into this direction or was it something else? Well, sort of. I mean, if you listen to studies, there's been lots of studies that show people who play piano tend to be better at math, right? Because music inherently is numbers based. And so growing up, I've always been better on the numbers side than on the language side. And so when I went to university, I pursued a degree in economics and finance. I went to business school, but my major was in economics and finance. And so more so in the economics part, that's where you deal with a lot of data, right? So that was kind of the entryway into learning more about statistics and working with large data sets. And so when I started off in my career, I worked for a financial consulting company who specialized in helping banks revise processes and become more lean, essentially. But I was involved on a lot of data-based projects and technology-driven projects, which further honed in my technology skills. And after a few years of working consulting, I then ended up working in a brand new industry, which was the cannabis industry here in Canada. Uh, and so a couple of years ago, when they, when they legalized in Canada, that's when I jumped into that industry and I worked as a data engineer. And I've since left that industry and now I am an independent consultant. And my specialties are really anything to do with data, specifically in data engineering, architecture, and analysis. Fascinating, fascinating. What was it that as you you went into the cannabis industry, what were the the data areas that were interesting there? What was the subject of like what was the mystery that they were trying to resolve that was most intriguing to you? Well, considering it's a brand new industry with no standardizations, one of the challenges and what people were uh, like myself were trying to fix is to create a standardized 
schema of how we capture our data and to design, for example, um, you know, how do you create a database table? What columns do you need in a particular dimension table? These are all things that were unknown because cannabis has never really been legalized, uh, at least in, in North America on a large scale. Right. Um, and additionally, there were no mature technology players. So everybody was designing their technology from scratch. And when people design their technology, they often didn't have a data lens to it because the idea is let's capture the data first before worrying about analyzing it tomorrow. And so one of the challenges of working in that industry is that data was often unclean and you spent a lot of time having to cleanse that data before you could even use it. How appropriate for the cannabis in industry. A lot of cleansing was necessary before the product <laughs> was ready for use. <laughs> Absolutely. What can, what can I say? What can I say? You know, something that struck me is when folks are doing sales-oriented kind of work, they tend to be using a CRM. Mm -hmm. And CRMs have the uh, endearing quality, but also frustrating, that you can extend them by adding fields, adding objects, and so mm -hmm. forth. And that often is done by folks without any data background. We have a couple of fields in our CRM that are laughable. Uh, one of them says, for instance, if I recall correctly, something like at the account level, there's a field that says 2017 revenue. Mm -hmm. And nobody who designs data for, uh, you know, for analysis or even maintenance would ever create such a field. But to the person that was trying to keep track of revenue that year, they thought, well, how simple, I'll just make a field that says 2017 revenue and drop it right here on the account object, not thinking ahead to, does that mean I need a 2018 revenue field? And, <laughs> and what is going to update that? You know, whatever process updated the 2017 revenue field, mm -hmm. oh, it has to be changed in 2018 and so forth and so on. That's an innocent example, but uh, and you know, it's not an egregious example. I would say mm -hmm. we have, my guess is we have probably 150 data fields that have been added to our CRM over time, mm -hmm. including some new objects. I would say 10 to 20% of those are somehow in meaningful use and we don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. And if you try to, and, and some of them change their meeting over time. Mm -hmm. So you'll say, oh yeah, back in 2019, the way we used this field was, we put in at the number of hours that it took to sell the deal. But that became uninteresting, but we kind of liked the field. And so we decided to put in the actual cycle time of the deal itself, the, the total number of days between first engagement and first close. And we just thought that'd be better. And you know, there you are, the, the, uh, the analyst trying to make sense out of this. How do you tackle stuff like that? And have you been faced with this I'll call it the extensible data model done by amateur modeling modelers problem that's full of lots of data. What do you do with that problem? Absolutely. So this is something I see all the time. And the reason why it happens is down, I can boil it down to one word, which is convenience, right? Often people will make customizations for their own convenience. And so whenever somebody adds a custom column or field, often they are just manipulating or filtering or aggregating existing data that already exists in their system, but it makes it more convenient to access. And so 
before I answer the question of how I deal with these types of custom columns, the first thing I will say is that as a general best practice, if you are running you know, your company or the at least the IT side of your systems and company, you should always try to avoid adding these columns of convenience. Because if you use an analytical tool, like for example, Power BI, Tableau, or Click, there are very easy ways for you to recreate those columns of convenience directly on your report. And so it negates the need for you to actually add it into your system. Whenever I see those things, it's always a big pain because they're not often labeled correctly. And what I mean by that is, as a best practice for data governance, you should have this thing called a data dictionary, which is basically a tool that allows you to add metadata to all of your data sources, right? So in your case, for example, 2017 revenue, if a data dictionary tool was used, then the original author of that custom column can say, these were the filters applied. This is how I aggregated and transformed the data. And so as a result, the data analyst or the end consumer does not need to make assumption or reverse engineer how that column was calculated, right? But in the absence of documentation, which is quite frequent, somebody like myself would have to reverse engineer and figure out how that column was calculated if it's not inherently obvious. And it does take up a lot of time, but I always tend to do that before I run any sort of analysis because I'd rather give you no information than to give you wrong information, which we all thought was correct, and you end up making wrong business decisions out of that. Yeah, it's pretty easy, I think. I, I think to be led down the garden path by thinking that a field means one thing, analyzing it, drawing a conclusion, and then chasing that conclusion, turning it into a hypothesis about the business, maybe mm -hmm. even getting other people excited about it. So now it has <laughs> political implications because right. you've, you've made some claim to even as a CEO, or maybe especially as a CEO, you don't want to say something and then have to walk it back. And, right. uh, you know, it's like, well, we we're all so excited that the particular danger I see actually is you say it, everybody believes it, you realize it isn't true, and then you can't get them to stop believing it. Which right, is, exactly. You know, I think it happens a fair amount. So as you work through that, here you are, you're, you, you know, somebody who's like me says, hey, Tom, give me a hand on this stuff. And you're looking into the data and you're mm -hmm. finding these labels that are ambiguous or they don't seem to match up with the data itself. Say you were to find two different times uh, for an event and one time appeared to be the time at the beginning and the other is the mm -hmm. time at the end. We just went through this today. That's why I'm bringing this That's up right. folks. And you say, well, let me just take a look and see how do those spread out, right? So it seems like one of the first things you do is you say, look, let's just count all the values and see mm -hmm. and just eyeball it, you know, sort it top to bottom. And in, in the case we we're looking at today, you found a bunch of negative times. And mm -hmm. we're pretty sure that time is never negative. That is dura <laughs> duration being negative is kind of, you know, things don't take minus 10 seconds. That doesn't happen right. in the actual world we live in. So there you are, you now have this piece of evidence that there's an issue with the actual data itself, you don't really know, is that an issue that's going to make a difference or not? Or can I just, is it just some 
error that was made in data input or whatever in some small mm -hmm. fraction. You've got to make a call there, right? That's How right. do you make that call? And then do you do that alone? Do are the people? I would think the people are generally not there who had to do with the creating those that, fields or filling them. They're gone, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. all right. gone. What do you, what do you do and how do you get past that to start to get to the good stuff? We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and Sell, welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell's patented technology. You'll load your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every single day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing how many tears were shed while watching Titanic kind of qualified. And we're back with Corey and Chris. Well, being an analyst, you have to have a degree of reasonableness, right? So um, with all data sets, there are going to be erroneous records, erroneous data, and it's up to you often as the person on the front line to decide whether or not something is acceptable or not. So, you know, call it the sniff test, right? So in the case of our analysis, even though we did discover negative time, the negative time did not represent a big chunk of all of the available data uh, rows, let's say. And so in this case, you know, even if we did include it in our analysis, it would not make a grand impact. But every analyst should, whenever they discover something that, you know, that seems odd, figure out the magnitude of that data, right? Figure out how much would it impact your final number if you were to include that data. And if it's not statistically significant, then don't waste your time and just include it and then call it out when you do actually report those numbers. That's the way I recommend other analysts go about it because sometimes people can go down a rabbit hole where you spend an entire day trying to cleanse a piece of data, which ultimately doesn't have any material effect on your final numbers. Yeah, my old chemistry professor, I remember from high school, said to me once, and I think I was probably 15 years old, said something that still sticks with me, which is a difference is a difference if it makes a difference. <laughs> and But of course, that's tricky. You can get kind of circular on that. You can assume that it doesn't make a difference, then find out that it was the thing that made all the difference. There's a lot of thinking that goes on to this. And I think that you're into this process. You know, one of the ways we've been working, one of the things I'd like the audience to think about is this. If you are engaged in a market dominance play, so what you're doing is you're, you're identified a market, you've made a list, you're having yourself or your folks talk to folks on that list, you're building trust, you're trying to stay out of the red ocean of everybody who's currently in market and everybody's fighting over those deals and go to the blue ocean where you're early, so to speak, and you're gonna very inexpensively use technology and good techniques and, and good attitude in order to talk to people multiple times. So you're doing all that stuff. I'm gonna make a recommendation that you find yourself somebody who you can work with, and, and I mean work with intensively, to iterate on these particular matters and to allow your curiosity to guide you into a couple of things. One is, is this data that we're looking at meaningful or not? Second, is it true or not? Third, does it lead us somewhere or not? 
And I think you need to iterate quickly. If you were look, to look at how you and I are working together, we're, we're having a touch point every day, mm-hmm. unless I'm on an airplane or whatever. And during that touch point, you're showing me what you've come up with from the previous day in the general rhythm is what's mm-hmm. happening. And then I'm going, huh, that's interesting. That makes me think of this. Or you're saying, you know, when I got to this point, this didn't quite look right. This looks like this might be wrong in some way, or or I discovered something interesting and we iterate. So we have this daily iteration cycle, but how often do you think we iterate or pivot or maneuver within say a one hour touch point session? And is that normally how you've worked with folks in the past or is that something that's a little bit new and different? Well. Between you and I, we definitely pivot a lot. And I actually see that as a good thing, right? Uh, It's basically the whole concept of if you're going to fail, then fail fast. So often we will analyze some data only to find out that, you know what, this isn't actually the data that we want to analyze. So, you know, a great example is when we were trying to figure out making our own analysis as to whether or not a phone number is direct or not, only to find out, well, why does it matter if we identify a number as being a direct number or not, when we should just always dial the number that has a, you know, has a faster navigation time, right? So to the audience, that example might not have made much sense, but I hope it did. But nonetheless, my point is, it's important to be able to be agile, especially if you are looking into a data concierge service, because Historically speaking, most companies would treat data analysis like, you know, for example, software development, where you capture all of the requirements up front, and then you provide a time estimate, and then you develop the work, and then you present it, right? But ultimately, the problem with that is that 99% of the time, people don't know what they want, right? I always like to reference that meme or that uh, segment of a movie from The Notebook, where the guy is trying to ask his lady friend, what do you want? And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. Right. And, you know, it's become a meme where people turn it for dinner conversations. Like, what do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want? I don't know. And it's the same thing for data as well. Often business leaders don't actually know what the most important KPIs are to successfully running their business, because you can't know what you want if you don't know that it exists, right? Or you you can't know what you want until you figure out it's statistically significant. So that's why I think data concierge is, you know, something that you've identified, Chris. And I think it's so important that lots of companies who do want to succeed utilize this new approach as opposed to the standard report building format of capturing all of the requirements upfront. Because in my past experience, 95% of the reports that I build, it looks new and shiny for the first couple of days, and then eventually nobody ends up using it. And how do I know this? Well, it's because in the tool that I use, which is Power BI, every single interaction with the report is logged and I have access to those logs. And so what do I do? I run my own report using the logged data only to find out that you know a report gets used quite heavily initially and then it just crickets. Interesting, interesting. So the half-life of a report with regard to its actual utility seems to be somehow inversely correlated to the detailed level of the specification that went into it. So the more you specify and the more certain you are that you got it right up front and everybody's talking about it, thinking about it, crafting it, but they're not looking at the actual data. I'm just making this up. I have a feeling it's probably true. 
then the shorter the time the report will be considered actually valuable and will be used on a daily basis by the people running the company. That's right. In other words, the simpler the report, the more it'll actually get used, right? So the best example is, uh, give me a sales report. Just tell me how much money have I made this week? Those types of reports, straight and simple, it's going to get used a lot. But once you start saying, give me a sales report, but only show the top five teams, right? Or the top five individuals and their sales, then it, it starts being used less because other people might say, well, damn, I need the top 10 or, oh, I only need my team. And so it doesn't meet everybody's requirements if you get it to be more detailed. And so as a result, it starts getting used less and less and less. And, and eventually as well, when it comes to your standard report building process, is that you often find new data points or you find irregularities with an assumption with data, which you know fails your assumption, and then you got to revise it, and then you got to create a new report in the future. And so, where everybody within an organization is constantly learning because of uh, its data, and so that's why, if I had to put a number, I would say the half life of a report is usually just about two weeks. Wow, wow! So you spend a bunch of money, you spend even more time. You do all the specification and you end up with something that lasts for two weeks, which means it wasn't providing much value in the two weeks either. Because <laughs> otherwise, it, it would have been hung on to. It's fascinating. Well, I mean, I really like the way we're doing this. I actually brought it to some folks at Microsoft and asked, you know, you have companies, uh, your customers like Intel or Boeing or, you know, these are big companies where I'm sure the CEO would love to have a private process where they can ask questions of the business without depending on individuals in the business mm -hmm. to give them answers. In fact, I call it being a CEO, being in the lonely minds club. Uh, we're assumed to have no hearts. And so we can't be the lonely hearts club, but the loneliness comes from the fact that no matter how you set up an organization, if you're at the top of it, your people are obliged to lie to you, whether they want to or not. That is mm -hmm. a the unvarnished truth doesn't know how to move to the singularity at the top of a company, but the data itself contains somewhere in it, the unvarnished truth. So okay. why not sit with somebody? And I like to do it every day. I think it's kind of the sensible uh, amount of time to spend and iteration rate to ask direct questions of the data. But as a CEO, I'm not gonna learn the tools. And, and you know me, I'm not mm -hmm. the least toolsy guy in the world, right? I, <laughs> built a little bit of code in my life and, and mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing. But uh, when I watch you with Power BI, I can say, hey, Tom, you know, what do you, what do you think? Instead of just having the, the y-axis be the number of dials and the x-axis be the duration of the navigation of the dial, what if we looked at the actual volume by multiplying mm -hmm. those two together? and in plotting that against something else, whatever it is we want to plot it against. What do you think? And you'll just go, sure, absolutely. That, 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 yeah, I can do that. Hang on a second. And you'll go click mm -hmm. and some things will happen. And here we are. Right. It's very important that we're screen sharing at the time. And I'll get a visual on that instantly. And I might see something in it and you might see something in it, or it could be nothing, but it mm -hmm. didn't cost a lot of time and nobody had to write a specification. And it'll spark curiosity. So. It's almost like if data is the new oil, you don't mm -hmm. want to just go drill where some bunch of people walking around in the ground said, well, you know, we found oil in a place once where there was a, a mesquite tree and <laughs> there was a cow nearby and it was noon. 
So here's a mesquite tree and here's a cow and it's noon, let's drill here mm -hmm. and spend the next six weeks drilling a hole in the ground and then find out there's no oil down there. You wanna drill a ways and sniff around, you know, I think in the mm -hmm. oil business, they use neutron activation analysis to do this, if I remember <laughs> correctly. And then you wanna steer the drill toward the more promising oil. And if you're running a really hard rock and you can't get through it, well, you know, maybe you wanna go another direction, right? Mm -hmm. Is that a reasonable analogy for this kind of thing? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the biggest issue, I think, with your traditional method of upstream reporting is that people can easily fudge the numbers and, you know, tell a different viewpoint of that story. I wouldn't say lying, but you can just conveniently forget a filter or hide in a filter somewhere or, you know, present a completely separate view of what's actually going on in the world, right? And I mean, any data, any good data analyst will know exactly how to fudge the numbers to make the numbers look good. And I've done that for other executives as well, right? For usually, you know, middle to uh, middle senior managers, like directors or senior directors, often I would present to them the data and the results and they say, oh, no, no, this doesn't look good. Help me make it look better, right? That's the issue with your standard method of reporting. But ultimately, if your data is recorded correctly, assuming there's not any sort of catastrophic failures in your technology stack, data doesn't lie, right? And so as the CEO, you have a fiduciary duty to do what's best for the organization as a whole. So why accept anything less than the actual truth? I mean, the truth might not look good, but how can you make good business decisions if you're not presented the absolute truth, right? So that's why I, I think, um, you know, the traditional way of reporting does need some sort of reform. But the one thing that I would be a little bit concerned about is just how many CEOs out there are really willing to commit, let's say, an hour each day going through the data with a data concierge. Because I, I genuinely mean this, Chris, I think you are one of the hard working CEOs who actually give a shit because, and pardon my language, because lots of CEOs out there just want people to do the work and they're not intellectually curious themselves. And so if you are going to, you know, utilize a data concierge service, you have to be intellectually curious and you have to understand your business very well. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I don't know if I'm special in this regard. I actually think here's my hypothesis and my observation about CEOs. CEOs have a hard time getting the truth out of anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they despair of getting it at all. And right. so when, but I do believe, and I know very few exceptions of the CEOs that I know. And by the way, market dominance guys all about, you know, it's a CEO audience, right? This mm -hmm. is about folks who want to dominate markets and middle managers don't get to dominate markets. Maybe right. they get to play, maybe they get to sort of be the CEO of their own world. Mm -hmm. General managers are always CEOs. Some people are CEOs who carry funny titles and you just kind of go, is that really a CEO? Like I would say Matt McCorkle over at Kaiser Compressors, he carries this title of uh, manager of branch operations. Does that sound like a CEO? <laughs> no, but I guarantee you Matt McCorkle is a CEO. I've worked with him and He's driving for improved results holistically for the company within the constraints as he sees them mm -hmm. and believes them. And he is relentlessly curious. So uh, what I find is the curiosity is there, but the pick has been blunted mm -hmm. on the hard rock of trying to get to 
actionable truth that you can believe because you're making big bets. You know, right. you're making big bets. Here's a big bet you and I are talking about, which is, I'll call it the direct number bet, right? Do we have enough information in our system about navigation times? We thought it was direct numbers, but it's really navigation times in order to automatically choose the best possibility of the ones on offer for trying to reach somebody. And I find when, when we're doing that, and I think this might be a little difference with between me and some other folks is I find it super helpful to have analogies. Analogies are soft, but there's an old experiment that was done where folks are asked to figure out from the values on on some playing cards and a rule, whether the rule is actually being followed or not. You know, like mm -hmm. all face cards have an odd number on the other side or mm -hmm. something like that, right? And people have a heck of a time reasoning through stuff like that. But if you take the same problem and you express it in terms of there are some people at a table and and the you know in a restaurant and the waiter or waitress got to figure out who's of drinking age or not, who they can serve a drink to. And you put the same problem in that in those words, exactly the same mathematical problem. Everybody can reason instantly. It's like the phone number thing you were talking about. My example is, okay, so you, you want to, you're, you're trying to get enough eggs in order to, to make this recipe. And the recipe calls for lots of eggs, maybe 12 dozen eggs. And you know stores that carry the eggs. And you, you know the navigation time, how long it takes on, on average and, and the midpoint, you know, 50% longer, 50% shorter uh, to that's called the median for folks who don't like these sorts of things to get to the store, right? And I have two forks, say two ways I can go. Well, if I don't know if the store is open at all and I can't call and find out. And then once I get there, if I don't know if they have eggs today or not, what's my best strategy? Well, the best strategy is always take the fastest route. So if not this store, you have some time left to go to another one because you only have so much time to get anything done. Mm -hmm. That analogy is easy to think through. Okay, as soon as I'm concrete and I have a road and I'm in my car and I get to choose the long way or the short way. Mm -hmm. And you know, then it's like, well, let's go find the short ways. Mm -hmm. and always choose them if we can. Have you found that you find yourself needing to explain to somebody that you're working with in terms of an analogy so they can think through something because they can't do it when it's the playing cards, but they can do it when they're the waiter or the waitress. Absolutely. Problem. Absolutely. And that's such an important thing. I mean, it's not as much of a skill set as being a traditional data analyst, because you're often not the ones telling the story. But um, if you want to be, you know, if you want to be a top notch, in my opinion, a top notch data analyst, you need to have a good enough business background to be able to convert these data concepts into analogies as well. Because the long story short is that 90% of the people in the room are not going to be as strong when it comes to data science as you are. That's why you work in data and you know your audience works not in data, right? Like they are business stakeholders. So and so that's why it's very important to be able to translate from numbers into English. And uh, it's funny that we bring this topic up because historically I've always worked with data scientists who are extremely smart in their field but they don't know how to properly convey the end result. And so as a result, they leave 
meetings where they just end up speaking gibberish, but people assume that what they're speaking is correct because holy crap, this guy's using a lot of big words, you know, and statistical concepts. He must be smart, right? But at the end of the day, what are you here to do? You're here to drive business value and you want to make sure that your audience can understand the value. And so analogies are a great way to be able to deliver on some of those uh, results. Well, and I would think also there's one more thing, which is we'll go back to that truth thing. So here I am, a CEO trying to trying to you know figure out what's the next great move to make for this company, and also mm -hmm. how can I avoid screwing up in some really bad way that I'm going to regret. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know we're looking at this stuff together, and I come up with an analogy. And one of the things that I really enjoy about working with you is you don't just accept the analogy; you'll point out where it's flawed. Like, mm -hmm. well, it could be like that. You're very gentle about it, by the way, which I think comes from <laughs> that piano lessons for the four-year-olds and stuff like that. So I get to be the four-year-old and I go, well, is it like this teacher? And you go, well, it's almost like that. But if you want the chord to sound better, mm -hmm. then, you know, move this uh, finger right. here over one of these keys, at, you know, a half step. <laughs> and then it'll be a major chord. And for this part of the song, it sounds better because it's happier. Whereas this other one sounded kind of sad and anxious or something. And you, can you hear the difference, right? You're very, but bedside manner, I'll call it, with still brutal truthfulness, like no, mm -hmm. Mr. CEO, that analogy doesn't cut it. Right. It's wrong. Right. Uh, that, seems, well, that seems like an important skill. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to MarketDominanceGuys.com and subscribe. Subscribe.